Everyone's talking about root causes of migration these days. We're hearing a lot about poverty, corruption, and violence, but we're not hearing much about what's behind that poverty, corruption, and violence, or about what's behind climate-related disasters and failing economies, all factors that force people to pull up stakes and flee. Why? We're also hearing a lot about bringing security and prosperity to the Central American region. But does this herald a new policy direction? Or is it simply a euphemism for more of the same? I sat down with Professor Aviva Chomsky to explore these questions and more. Her brilliant new book, Central America's Forgotten History, Revolution, Violence, and the Roots of Migration, takes us all the way back to the founding of the United States to explain the complex relationship the U.S. has long had with its southern neighbors and how we got to the place we find ourselves in today. Professor Chomsky's book is a must-read for anyone wishing to understand why migrants, refugees, and asylum seekers continue to arrive at U.S. borders despite decades of U.S. immigration strategies that prioritize deterrence over the human right to dignity. Witness Radio. Welcome, Professor Chomsky, Aviva, can I call you that? Avi. Avi, great. I'm super honored to be in discussion with you tonight on behalf of my colleagues at Witness at the Border. I want to start really with a note of gratitude because in some ways I feel like you wrote this book for me. I came of age um, just west of you in Amherst, Massachusetts at Hampshire College in the 80s. I was studying, among other things, the rise of the new right under Reagan, which we are feeling the effects of today in the extreme, reading the horrifying reports dribbling out of Central America. I was compelled to go and see for myself. Much as I was compelled to go to the U.S. border, by my horror of Trump's policies, which led me to begin to write about immigration and which brought me to the witness team. After Hampshire and as a literacy educator, I was one of those internationalistas that you write about in chapter eight. I went to Nicaragua first and after that to Guatemala and finally to El Salvador. So reading your book brought me back in vivid, vivid detail. I, I was transported. It re-educated me. It provided me additional and invaluable context, pulling the lens way back with details about that point in time, but also zooming in to today with regard to immigration policy and immigration flows. And it reminded me what I'd forgotten about my experiences in the 80s and 90s. So I wanted to start there with this idea of forgetting as a way to keep people and history ignorant to the truths about our own complicity in bringing harm to others. So, so many things to say, but I'll- <laughs> Good, go for it. <laughs> like you, I feel like I came of age, came to political consciousness in many ways through the revolutions in Central America. As I started through the late 1970s, early 1980s, to become aware of what was going on in Central America and the U.S. role, I was shocked to learn how much I didn't know. Mm -hmm. And I just felt so ignorant. But when I got into graduate school, I discovered that 
everybody's ignorant about Central America. Right. Uh, but in the United States, there were very, very few people working on Central American history. We sort of formed our cohort. We organized classes. We brought in guest speakers. We worked with local organizations. And then we became sort of the generation of Central Americanists. And now I teach Central American history. And I have many students who are immigrants from Central America. Both my U.S. American students and my Central American students, it was as if those revolutions had been erased. Wow. Wiped out from people's memories. I remember my very first year of teaching in 1990, there were still kind of glimmers, especially among my students who've gone to Catholic schools. They knew about Monsignor Romero. They knew about the repression of the church. But even that sort of started to fade. So I was really struck by how there were these two completely different populations, that is, students you know, multi-generations in the United States and no connection to Latin America, but should know something about the United States, who had no idea. And students from El Salvador, Guatemala, who would say things like, you know, my parents never wanted to talk about why we came here. Wow. So that was part of it. The other part of it was every time I would go to teach my Central America course, I would find myself going back to books that had been written in the 1980s and early 1990s. It's become an academic field, but it's moved out of the public sphere. So, you know, we had books to teach with, like Walter Lefebvre's Inevitable Revolutions, like Mm -hmm. Stephen Schlesinger and Stephen Kinzer's Bitter Fruit about Guatemala and the 1954 coup, like Ralph Lee Woodward's History of Central America, Many histories of Central America, Alberto Torres Rivas, whose book was translated into English, Hector Perez Brignoli, whose book was translated into English. Those were all accessible books that you could teach in an introductory college course, but they hadn't been updated. (laughs) And so much has happened since the 1990s in Central America. And then Um, I'm particularly shocked in a conversation with a colleague who was also a Central Americanist, but a historian. And I said to him, I want to write about how the peace of the 1990s is what has led to the migrations today. And he said, huh, how are you going to make that connection? It's like, what? You? What? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So at the Latin American Studies Association in Boston, there's a film festival. One of the films that was being shown was called Finding Oscar. And it's about a case, a Guatemalan case of a massacre in the village of Dos Erres. Mm-hmm. which I was aware of when it happened. It was one of the big scandals of the Guatemalan dirty war. In the late 1990s, human rights groups in Guatemala were trying to investigate the massacres and track down the perpetrators. And they learned that there had been two survivors, two young children who survived the massacre who were taken by the soldiers. One of them was adopted by the soldier's family, grew up in a military family, And as a teenager, came undocumented to the United States, just a few miles from me. There are several large Guatemalan and Salvadoran communities in different towns around the Boston area. So the film is incredibly dramatic and beautifully done. And several of the perpetrators of the massacre also ended up in the United States. And the film shows this. But the really special thing was that Oscar and his family, including his young children and his lawyer, were all there for the showing. 
So after the film, they all went up and talked about the case and his experience and the making of the film. And the lawyer said he didn't know his own history. Nobody around him knew his history. Um, And it made me think about how many Central American immigrants there are in the United States who don't know their histories. Then just all the pieces started fitting together, like different cases that I had read where war criminals were discovered in the United States living invisibly. One of the architects of the 1989 Jesuit massacre in El Salvador, living in Everett, Massachusetts, (gasps) quietly, invisibly working as a landscaper, You know, one of the perpetrators of the Dos Erres massacre was working as a cook. That like all of these wars of the 1980s are now invisible. The book is so important because it does provide us with this history that, like you said, I read everything I could possibly read at the time about the region I was hanging out in. But it was a bit of this and a bit of that, right? It wasn't this wonderful package of everything. So it really made me appreciate the historian's task of deciding when does history start? You go back as far as the earliest settlers, really, and in your premise that the same racist mindset that led to the genocide of North American indigenous people undergirds the continuation of manifest destiny once the West was won for white people that has continued the destruction of cultures and lands and people and languages that began with the Spanish and has continued with our neoliberalist policies. Well, I really feel that in the United States, our profound blindness to our own history starts with pilgrims. (laughs) Thanksgiving. (laughs) And is really formulated in the way we learn the American Revolution. Uh-huh. Even the language that we use, like when we talk about the British, the Pilgrims, the Puritans, we don't talk about them as colonizers. We call them colonists. Mm-hmm. You know, the colonizers are like other people. Like that's what other people do. That's what Europeans do. That's what the Spanish did. They colonized. But the Pilgrims were colonists. So I think that a really key concept for understanding U.S. history, all of U.S. history up to today, is settler colonialism. Mm -hmm. And understand the British as colonizers, but colonizers with the goal of elimination that Mm -hmm. is to remove, displace, exterminate the native population and replace it with a white immigrant population who are then called immigrants and not colonizers. (laughs) The colonization of the United States shares this pattern with Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Israel, where the native population is just not supposed to be there. It's a white European settler colony. Mm -hmm. I started thinking this way when I was working on immigration and Mm -hmm. this phrase, we always hear that the United States is a country of immigrants, always welcomed immigrants. Well, not really. We've always welcomed white immigrants. And that's because we're a settler colonial country. And this is something we learn about in Latin American history. We learn that after independence, 1800s and 19th century and early 20th century, 
the Latin American governments engaged in state-sponsored immigration in order to whiten their populations. But if you look at U.S. immigration history, that's exactly what the United States did. Like, we always welcomed immigrants add from Europe. We never welcomed immigrants from Asia or from Latin America. Um, and people from Africa were not considered immigrants. They were denied citizenship. But the next piece that I think is really important for us to understand is the American Revolution, because that's another place where we just delude ourselves so fundamentally about the nature of the country. Gerald Horn, a historian at the University of Texas, wrote a really interesting book called The Counter-Revolution of 1776. He argues that what we call the American Revolution was actually a counter-revolution, and it was not a revolution against colonialism. Right. It was a revolution of, by, and for the colonizers and their major goal was to expand their colonial project. So if you compare the U.S. Revolution to, say, the Haitian Revolution, starting in 1791, in Haiti, it was the colonized people who rebelled, and they threw out the white colonizers. <laughs> That's what most anti-colonial revolutions do. But our revolution was a revolution of the colonizers, and they wanted to preserve slavery. They wanted to expand further. They wanted to promote white immigration. So our revolution was a central part of the colonial and expansionist white settler colonial project. I think if you understand that, then the 19th century makes sense in a whole different way. Mm -hmm. Colonial expansion begins not in 1898, it begins in 1608. West history is a history of colonial expansion. There's no other way of understanding that history. I mean, Central America first becomes part of this white settler colonial project, really in the 1850s with the discovery of gold in California. That's when the first U.S. interventions, which are military, they're political, they're economic, but Central America becomes part of the sphere that colonizers are trying to control and extract from. And, you know, there it is in a nutshell. Absolutely. In fact, I think I remember reading somewhere at one point that King George wanted to put limits on slavery. Is that true? Or no, on the killing of the native Oh, it's all there in the Declaration of Independence. So in 1763, Britain signed a treaty with the Native American tribes saying that white settlement would not go beyond the Appalachian Mountains. So there's this line drawn. The colonizers, again, I don't want to call them the colonists, the colonizers were furious. And Britain is starting to talk about abolition. And indeed, that's right. That's uh, right. British abolished slavery way before the Americans did. So if we had remained a British colony, slavery would have been abolished decades before, and it wouldn't have required a war. And if you look at the Declaration of Independence, that's all in there, but we just are taught to like read over it without seeing it. When Incredible. So when I was in graduate school, which was in the 1970s, 1980s, we learned about Latin American history through the lens of dependency theory. And through the critical lens of dependency theory, I should say, dependency theory being a critique to modernization theory. Modernization theory was basically the theory that motivated U.S. policy towards Latin America, that there was a one-way street 
from underdevelopment to development, and that every country in the world started out poor and agricultural, but was going to go through these stages of urbanization and industrialization and getting richer and developing a middle class and end up exactly like the United States. The United States and Europe just happened to do it first, but now all those poor countries of the third world were going to do it too. They were just behind. That's modernization theory. Dependency theory critiqued that and argued that no, there's a world system. And those rich countries, they didn't get rich just by happening to be first in line. They got rich by exploiting us. They colonized us. They took our resources. They exploited our labor. That's how they got so rich. And our economies were distorted. Our economic development was distorted by this foreign control. It's been a dependent development. And it's never going to go the same way as the United States and Europe did. And on the topic of colonialism, the first time I heard the term neoliberalism, and maybe I just wasn't paying attention in math class, you know, I never was one for numbers, that's why I'm a writer. But the first time it was explained to me the impacts in the context of US colonialism was at a community meeting of campesinos in rural Nicaragua, it might have been El Salvador, I don't remember. All I remember was that it was very, very hot because it was summertime and there were no fans and there was no air conditioning and people were using like banana leaves to cool themselves and there were children everywhere because children are always welcome. And these campesinos taught me what I needed to know about neoliberalism. So for my further edification, can you please dig deeper into how the International Monetary Fund and how the World Bank and how their use of structural adjustments was used to benefit the neoliberal policies of the US and European investors at the expense of real people. Yes, but first, just so you don't feel bad about your supposed ignorance about neoliberalism, it's really not until the 1990s that the term starts to be used. And in a way, it's a result of the debt crisis in the late 1980s. And in Central America, it's really in the 1990s with the signing of the peace treaties, with the election of Violeta Chamorro in Nicaragua in 1990, the Salvadoran peace treaty in 92, the Guatemalan 96, that that the United States and these international financial institutions that you mentioned, the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, are really able to implement these debt-oriented structural adjustment programs. And in the mid-1990s, the World Bank and International Monetary Fund basically took control of their economic policies with the goal of putting all their income towards repaying the debt. And this is really like your story, a friend who's an anthropologist who was working in a small remote rural village in Turkey. She said, wow, you know, in the village where I do my research, nobody knows how to read and write. There's no school in that village, but they all know what structural adjustment is. Wow. Privilege of forgetting like Uh in the United States don't have to know, you know, we're the ones responsible, but we don't have to know. So imposing economic control in the interests of debt repayment means that governments are required to um, cut back on their spending on social services, 
because that's taking money that should be going towards repaying the debt. Basically, the entire social safety net, the entire public sector has to be decimated because the government is not supposed to be spending money on the needs of its own population. So privatization, selling off of government assets, and creating conditions that are going to be welcoming for foreign investment, because that's supposedly how economies are going to grow and they're going to be able to pay back their debts. So it's really a very convenient system for corporations, these set of neoliberal reforms, because it creates a wealth of opportunities. So like if you look at the bigger picture, U.S. taxpayers are paying for these loans that then empower these institutions to further impoverish the third world countries for the benefit of U.S. corporations. So it's like this invisible circle that in the end, we're the ones who are paying for it. The Central American people obviously are the ones who are suffering for it. And not just Central America, in this village in rural Turkey, in Africa, in all of the poorest countries of the world. So what are the conditions that foreign investors want? Well, they want low wages. Mm -hmm. They want no environmental regulations. They want a strong military and police system that's going to put down any kind of protest. They want free access to land. They want to be able to extract and export resources, paying low royalties and low taxes. So basically, the conditions that foreign corporations want are almost the absolute opposite of the conditions that the local population needs, because the local population needs decent wages, they need environmental regulation, they need protection against deforestation, they need clean water, they need clean air, and they need public services. So these neoliberal reforms have been devastating, especially for the poor, Mm -hmm. great for the elites and their allies, the foreign corporations, and their allies, the US government, and their allies, the international financial institutions. So how come there was debt? You know, I think it goes right back to this idea of modernization theory and the economic development model that the United States was trying to implement in Latin America. So during the 1960s, 70s, the idea of modernization theory was, you know, we want to solve world poverty. We want to give the poor countries a little uh, a push towards becoming more modern. Um, so a lot of the debt was incurred by governments that had little or no popular support that used the debt for projects that enriched themselves and that promoted foreign investment. So infrastructure that was of use maybe to wealthy urban dwellers, maybe to foreign investors, but certainly not for the poor rural majorities. So then when the debt comes due, the people who incurred the debt may no longer even be there, but the the country is responsible for the debt. So, I mean, I think there was a real collaboration between IFIs, international financial institutions and the elites of Latin American countries in terms of their ideas about how to bring economic development. But it wasn't a kind of economic development that helped the poor. And then the result is um, structural adjustment programs that obviously work against the poor. Right, but at some level, 
do they think that what they're doing is the right thing? Do they really understand how they're really affecting people? Like I remember, again, my very first visit to the region, just from the airport, right? The crushing, crushing poverty is so visible. And I'm thinking it's no excuse that everyone in the United States is so removed from it that they don't see it, that they don't understand their complicity in this structure. But the folks who were there, the infamous 14 families who in your book, you, you say is really more like 200. Still, that's not a lot of people. We were talking about at the time, I think 3% of the population that had all the wealth and the other 97, if I remember the numbers correctly, had none. And so that's pretty big forgetting on the part of those 14 families and the world bankers and the IMF adjusters who must know on some level that what they're doing is harming people. Well, it's not really my capacity to psychoanalyze. I'm sorry. <laughs> but let me say, I don't know if you or our listeners, how many people just read the news about the children's bodies uncovered at the residential boarding school in Canada. You know, this was a collaboration between the Catholic Church and the Canadian government. And the exact same thing was happening in the United States, not so much with the Catholic Church, it was more with Protestant denominations in the United States. But the residential boarding schools, they were not only in Canada, they were also in Australia. You know, it was really part of the 19th and 20th century modernization, assimilation ideology. And I'm sure if you sat down to have dinner with one of the architects of the system in any one of those three countries, or one of the teachers in the program, you would find two things. One, they really believe they're doing this to help people because mm -hmm. in the long run to be assimilated and to learn to speak English. And two, they're incredibly racist. Mm. So arrogantly sure that it's their way or the highway and that they represent the future and that these people represent the past and that they're doing it for their own good. Mm. And that kind of deep racism infuses U.S. policy towards Central America, and it infuses the elites of Central America. And this is where, you know, just going back to the American Revolution and this idea of settler colonialism, those 14 families, if you want to talk about El Salvador, 250 families, you know, the small elites in all of those countries, in many ways, you know, they, they have what maybe we could call a dual consciousness. Uh -huh. um, they really identify with the United States in many ways. That is, they see themselves as the bringers of progress to their benighted country. Mm. And at the same time, they're also resentful of the United States. Mm -hmm. They're treated as savages who need to be civilized by the United States, and they don't see themselves as savages who need to be civilized. They see the rest of the population as savages who need to be civilized and themselves as the civilizers. You know, it's basically colonial arrogance is what explains the ability of people, whether it's the elites living in gated communities or the IMF World Bank executives. Even on the left in the United States, we have this kind of feeling like, oh, we're going to go in and solve all the world's problems for them because we're so great and so smart and we know everything and it's our job to go everywhere and help everybody. 
I was in Nicaragua working on my dissertation research in 1988, I think it was. Um, so I joined this delegation. And one of the places we met was with the Mothers of Heroes and Martyrs in Matagalpa. Mm-hmm. We're all rural peasant women whose children had been killed either in the Contra War or in the insurrection. Um, they had been killed by Samosa's National Guard or they had been killed by the Contras. So basically they had been killed by the United States. And they talked to us and told us their stories. And it was, you know, you described the the poverty that you saw. And, you know, that's what we as um, U.S. Americans were seeing there too. And then, of course, the tragedy of losing their children and their revolutionary commitment and their belief that their children hadn't died in vain, but that it was to build a, a new country. It was just, you know, really heart-wrenching. And at the end of the meeting, one of the delegates expressed what we were all thinking, said, um, you know, we want to help you. What can we do to help you? And the women obviously had met with many of these delegations and they had heard that question before and they had their answer ready. They said, we don't really want your help. We want you to go back to your country and make your government stop what it's doing to us. Mm -hmm. And we don't need your help. Um, We need you to let us do it. Those Nicaraguans, though, they are so smart and they taught me so much. And uh, and their poverty was real, but they also had hope when I was there. Like you, I was there 88, 89, while the revolutionary experiment was in full swing. And one of the things they taught me, speaking of arrogance, was that the sheer arrogance of adopting the name of an entire continent that includes two massive land masses connected by an isthmus and comprises, what, 35 countries to refer to just one of those countries. Ever since then, it has struck me in the heart every time I read or hear somebody refer to our country as America. I I avoided that in the book. You didn't do it. I was so grateful I'm reading. I must have been halfway through before I realized, wow, she's never referred to the United States as America. As a writer, that's easy. You say the United States or the U.S., but I find it more difficult to refer to the people. So how do you manage that? Just a pure linguistics question. Well, you know, one place where it's really hard is when you're referring to the U.S. revolution, because you were taught that when you were five years old, right? The American yeah. Revolution. It's so hard not to just have those words come out of yeah. your mouth. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the United States is the only country in the world that does not have a name for its own people. But it does in other languages. It does in other languages and it does in Spanish. It's easy. We're Estadounidenses. Totally. I mean, in Spanish, but, you know, every language has a name for us too, except for English. Except for us. So what do you do? What do you use? Sometimes they say U.S. Americans. Uh-huh. There was actually a debate on the Latin American Studies Association e-list a few years ago, and somebody proposed United Stations. <laughs> People proposed all kinds of things, but that was the one that like won the vote on the Latin American Studies e-list, but it never caught on. So. But it brings up another question for me, which goes to your subtitle about root causes. Kamala is bopping all around Latin America talking about poverty, you know, and, and violence and environmental degradation sort of, and not about what causes all of that. So 
you know, she's there perpetuating the same old, same old, the same neoliberal policies and more militarization and pushing the border further and further and further and further south to stop migrants rather than look at why they're coming. I feel like in terms of his domestic policy, Biden has made some really radical proposals. Now, words don't change things. Policies change things, right? And it's really not clear yet. But certainly in terms of immigration, he's made some really radical proposals in terms of creating a path to citizenship for, it sounded like, pretty much everybody who's here without documents. But, you know, especially when we look at Latin America and when we look at immigration, you just can't separate domestic policy from foreign policy. And, you know, that's why I feel like it's so important for us to look back on the history of the United States and U.S. expansionism starting in 1608, like what's domestic and what's foreign? People of color were always considered foreign to the white settler colony. So foreign policies and domestic policies are all tied up together there. And certainly insofar as when we talk about immigration today, it's the same thing. So, you know, Biden certainly says nicer things about immigration than Trump does, but the policies he's proposing towards Central America really reflect a bipartisan consensus of U.S. policy that, um, you know, he calls it security and prosperity, Biden does. It's based on, you know, you can go back 20, 30, 40 years and the same kind of security, which means militarization, um, and prosperity, which means um, creating optimal conditions for foreign investment, you know, really that's been the policy towards Central America ever since the 1990s, ever since the end of the wars. During the wars, the policy was counterinsurgency, but the security has become much more focused on migration issues and on the militarization of Mexico's southern border, of expanding U.S. border control into the interior of Mexico, into the interior of Guatemala, to Guatemala's southern border, and even into the interior of Honduras and Honduras's southern border. So, you know, they've defined migration as the problem that they want to solve, and they want to solve it through military means. In closing, I asked Avi to give us a call to action for how we may move more equitably and humanely into the future as a people and a nation. Before I turn the mic back to her, I want to urge you once again to read her book, Central America's Forgotten History, Revolution, Violence, and the Roots of Migration. Because it is only through the act of unforgetting, that is, through knowing our history, that we can bring about positive social change, and in the case of our U.S. southern border policies, begin to truly welcome, with dignity, those in need of humanitarian relief. I also invite you to become a patron of Witness Radio, where you'll be privy to additional exclusive content and invitations from Witness at the Border. I'll leave links to Avi's book and our Patreon page in the show notes to this pod. For now, back to you, Avi. Okay, so I guess there's three places that I think people should be thinking about action. One is the border, and you guys are doing that work. Two is climate change. We are the biggest contributors to climate change, and climate change is the gravest crisis that the planet is facing. And it is one of the huge factors undermining people's ability to live in Central America. And then number three is foreign policy. We want to have a humane immigration policy. We also want to have a humane foreign policy that allows Central Americans and everybody in the world 
to create systems that work for their own people and not just for U.S. corporations. Thank you again. Thank you for your great questions. Thanks and gratitude to Aviva Chomsky, Witness Radio Executive Producer, Professor Camilo Perez Bustillo, our Patreon patrons, without whom we could not produce this show, and to you, our listeners, for joining us to consider the real root causes of migration to the United States, the ones lurking behind poverty, corruption, and violence, and which contribute to today's climate-related disasters and failing economies south of the U.S. border. I'm Sarah Towell, host and director of Witness Radio, where we aim to discuss all the issues plaguing the U.S. immigration system today. This is Why We Witness. Subscribe, rate, and review Witness Radio on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. And please consider becoming a patron of Witness Radio if you haven't already. Just go to patreon.com slash witnessradio and sign up. We'll see you here, there, and everywhere. Witness Radio is produced by Livia Brock.